Hard to think that we've come to the end of this series. We'll be in Genesis 4 in just a moment if you want to open there. It has been a great blessing. I thank you so much for the encouraging words, the encouraging thoughts that you've exchanged with me about the lessons and pointing me toward things I may not have seen in these texts. God has blessed us richly by revealing himself, as we talked about in the first lesson, not just in the nature and in the mechanisms of nature and the order and all of that, but he specifically and specially revealed himself as he manifests himself to us in his own words about the nature that he made. We, we met God in chapter 1, God the great spirit who gave life and who made the universe and all things that are in it as is told so many times over through the Old Testament, specifically David in Psalm 19, and again in the New Testament as Paul is preaching at the Areopagus there in Athens. But over and over we see these great truths pointed out through the Bible text. In Genesis 2 we meet man. We learn a little bit about our own nature who we are, how God made us, what he made us for in terms of purposes, the beauty of the place that he made to have fellowship with us in that Garden of Eden, and how that is a type of the Holy of Holies. And he's given us this opportunity to come before him. And then how man and woman fell into temptation and gave in and rebelled against the simple command that God had given. They proved in their rejection that they were willing to stop loving him, at least for a time, if it meant there was something they could gain, even temporarily. And they gave in to the temptation of that serpent, who we know was being influenced, or was Satan. And we saw that the curse came down, as God gave out a ray of hope, saying that the woman, even in her pain, would bring forth a child, and that one of her seed would crush the head of the serpent. But this pain and childbirth and all the process would be greatly multiplied, and so it would for the man as well. We saw that God, even distinctly in their roles, said they would be suffering in the roles they would perform. And yet the hope was there. In verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve. Even through the painful process, they would submit to God's will now, and she would become the mother of all living through this beautiful process that God had designed in the hope that one of her seed would in fact crush out the head of the serpent and then God covered their shame with these tunics that he made from the skins of innocent animals who died and shed their blood for the sake of Adam and Eve but then he drove them out of the garden and placed cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life that ray of hope that he left there he didn't just take away the tree of life he left a way <laughs> But that way is going to be fraught with God's plan. It's only going to be walkable by those who will submit to his will. We're going to pick up in chapter 4 now with life outside of the garden. What this must have been like after being in the presence of God in the paradise, that word Eden that describes this paradise, what that must have been like must have been striking for Adam and Eve. And it is amazing that God wastes no time pointing out where sin takes people. <laughs> Adam and Eve ate from a fruit that was forbidden. What's so wrong about that? But we're going to see the consequences of all this and where the rejection of God and his order and his goodness, where that leads. So read with me, if you would, in chapter 4. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through uh, 7 to begin with. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. 
Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Adam knew Eve, his wife. They had submitted to God's plan, and so they come together. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've acquired a man from the Lord. She is thinking of God and his plan when this child comes along. I've acquired a man from the Lord. Could this be the one? I can almost hear it in her voice. He said I was going to have a seed, and here he's provided a seed. He's provided the one, perhaps, that's going to squash the head of the serpent. How do I know she was thinking that? Well, I can't be dogmatic about it, but I want to show you just a few generations later that people are thinking about that promise in Genesis chapter 5. I'd like you to go with me down to verse 28. We're reading in this text about how God keeps his promises, and one of his promises was that those who are descendants of Adam, because of his access to that tree that he was not supposed to eat from, that death would reign. And over and over, chapter 5 says he lived so-and-so number of years, had children, and then he died. <laughs> over and over, that promise was kept. But God keeps all of his promises, and his desire is to bless us with good promises. So look, starting at verse 28 of Genesis 5. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. <laughs> What do you think Lamech was thinking about? <laughs> thinking about that promise. Having comfort from the curse. He's thinking of those labors, those birth pains that we talked about last time that both male and female would suffer. And Lamech, when he had Noah, said, this might be the one. This has got to be the one. <laughs> in, a, in a great sense, he was. <laughs> he was one who brought rest in a certain sense. And he was a shadow, of course, of the one who will absolutely bring rest. But I just wanted to point out that men are thinking of this promise. I think that's good news. It shows that men are teaching their children about this promise. They're passing this forward. And Lamech, several generations later, thinks maybe this is the one. There's hope tied to that promise. And so they're hoping in these early generations. And that hope will be what drives them to keep their lineage pure later as they want to hold on to that promise and make sure that they're working to bring about what God talked about. And back in chapter 4, she conceived and bore this man that she acquired from the Lord and named him Cain. And then she bears again. God said he was going to multiply her conception. And this time she has his brother Abel. I think it's interesting that the first thing we learn about these two that are now outside the garden is the kind of work they did. This is a world that's been broken by sin. And there's no longer just the maintenance of the garden. There is laborious work to do. That's what God said was going to happen. And so we learn right away that Abel is a worker. He is a keeper of sheep. And we find out that Cain, like his father before him, is a tiller of the ground. I want you to think about for just a moment why those two things. Why would those be necessary? <laughs> why would there need to be a keeper of sheep? I want you to, uh, this is open. I'm asking a question. I ask this question when I'm sitting at the table with somebody. What would be the purpose of keeping sheep? So the sheep don't get lost, okay. Why would people want to keep sheep? Not just so the sheep don't get lost, but for the people's perspective. Food and wool. Are they eating meat yet? No. Not yet. I always thought the same thing. But this is, God is not sanctioned eating of meat. He won't until after the flood. 
Genesis 9 is the first time he says, you can eat meat, just don't eat the blood. So they're not keeping these sheep for meat. They haven't even perhaps had that idea yet. That's God who's going to tell them to do that. But I think wool. Why wool? These people need clothing now, don't they? Adam and Eve in the garden didn't need clothing, but outside the garden, God put clothes on them, and he did it by killing the animals. But here, if you can just shear off the wool, you don't have to kill the animal. And so there's a humane, we would say today, there's a, a nicer way, even in this broken world, to still be able to clothe ourselves. I believe that Cain, that Abel is working the sheep so they'll have clothing. I want to show you why I think that in just a second after we talk about Cain. Why till the ground? This is obvious. <laughs> they got to eat. There's more of them now. So Adam's production in the ground is not going to be enough to feed Adam's family and now Abel's and Cain's families. And so you've got another farmer coming along to produce more food. Think about the blessings that God always promises to Israel. I want to think about them more even in the New Testament context. You recognize Matthew 6.33. Probably as I just say that verse, you can think about what that verse says. <laughs> Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. In the context, what two things is he talking about? <laughs> Food and clothing. The very two things that these men are working on as they just came out of the garden. These are two things that are constant in God's care over his people. It's interesting that he told them from the beginning, back in chapter 1, while they're still in the garden, I've given you every green herb for food. The commandment he gave them was, eat freely. He gave them food when they didn't need clothing yet. As soon as they needed clothing, what's the first thing we see that he gave them? Clothing. And then he's still providing them with food through this work they're doing. They're going to have to work a little harder for it now. Food and clothing from early on are the two major blessings. I love that promise in Matthew 6.33, by the way, because what God is saying is if you will focus on what's really important, I'll make sure you don't have to spend so much time focusing on what's really not important. How do we usually do it? As long as i got food and clothing, and I'm, you know, I've got a lot of food and a lot of clothing, then I can start thinking about spiritual things. That's completely backwards. God wants us not to be distracted by the basics so we can really contemplate what's important. And so he promises, if you'll just contemplate what's important, I'll make sure you get the rest. Now, he doesn't say, I'll give you your filet mignon every day. We might want that. I'll give you bread. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> uh, we, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is the same promise inverted a bit. Seek first him and his words, and he'll make sure you've got what you need. He sent the apostles out two by two, and he says, don't take any money. Don't take any bread. <laughs> you just go and you teach the word of God. You focus on the kingdom. That's what they were doing. And as they went, they were fed. They were clothed. They had one tunic. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their food didn't wear out. As they go 40 years in the desert, in Deuteronomy, God reminds them, did you run out of food? Did your sandals even wear out on your feet? Did your clothing wear? Isn't that interesting? God provided food and clothing. <laughs> over and over, that's the promise. And he's doing it from the very beginning. <laughs> so you've got Abel working the sheep and Cain tilling the ground. I love this text because for the first time after the fall, we begin to see men approaching God. In, in the garden, God approached men. He came in to walk in the cool of evening. Now, men are going to worship God by trying to draw near, by approaching. And how they're going to do it is through these offerings. It's the first time we see this in the Bible history. And so in verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Isn't it interesting, knowing the story, that Cain is the first one we see presenting his offering? We'd expect to be Abel, right? He's the good one. He's the one that Hebrews 11 says he made his offering by faith. And yet, 
the one we see first in the story, the way it's registered for us at least, is Cain brings an offering. And it also, verse 4, Abel brought. Also, <laughs> Abel brought from his flock. Is there a difference in these two offerings that are being made here? Look at verse 3. What do we know about the offering of Cain here? We deduce that it's not right because of what happens. Perhaps we don't really see that. What are we told about? There's two things we're really told. Really, yeah, two basic things we're told about this offering. What's the first? That it's food. It's fruit of the ground. So what might we expect Cain to offer? What's his job? <laughs> he's got to offer what he's got. So God has given him produce from his work, and so that's what he's offering. I don't think there's anything wrong. We don't get a judgment on his offering. I want you to listen carefully. We don't get a judgment on his offering here. <laughs> he's offering fruit of the ground. Some people have this concept that, well, he didn't offer a blood sacrifice, so it didn't count. You ever read Leviticus 2? <laughs> that's a grain sacrifice, and it counted. <laughs> In fact, if you read Leviticus 5 at the very end, one of the sin sacrifices, this is just mind-blowing, one of the sin sacrifices is a handful of flour if you're too poor to give a female sheep, if you're too poor to give two turtle doves, if all you can afford is the food on your table, take that to God. That's your sin offering. It's amazing. A bloodless offering. How then is sin paid for? Well, it wasn't the blood of that little she lamb that paid for the... <laughs> it, wasn't the it wasn't the turtle doves. It certainly isn't the bloodless flower. Those are all just types of the offering that's coming later. <laughs> So Cain takes a grain offering. That's a legitimate offering as far as we know. We, we, can, we can deduce some more things. What else do we learn in that verse about it? There's something else, and it depends on your translation perhaps how this reads. I read it from New King James, which I don't think does it justice. It's still legitimate, but there may be a better reading of this. Anybody have a different reading than the New King James in verse 3? You're all reading from the New King James? Anybody got a New American Standard or English Standard out there? I didn't bring my other one up here. Yeah, Jay. What, what's the reading there in verse 3? Which one do you want? I got both of them up. Uh, let's do, I don't know, either one of those. Anything, any other thing will be different than the New King James, I think. New American Standard, so it came about in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Okay, what about in the, in the course of time? What about the other version? What does it say? Uh, in, in English Standard, it's in the course of time, Cain okay. brought to the Lord an offering to the Lord. Does anybody have a footnote on there that says at the end of times <laughs> it's an interesting thank you yeah so somebody has that the hebrew the indication is here that this is something that happened at the very end of the season this is after some times he brought now in the context here it looks like it's just he's sort of giving this counting and so some time passed and came but the language seems to indicate that this is at the end of the season I want you to notice that when God's handing down the laws about when they should bring in the offerings, he will tell them in Israel, you bring the offering of the first fruits, and then there's an in-gathering offering at the end of the season. So I want you to bring both of those. But there seems to be an indication that Cain has sort of waited until he's had what he needs, and at the end of the season, whatever's left over, he said, well, I guess I can give this stuff to God. Again, there's a little bit of interpretation in that, but the original Hebrew indicates this is at the end of some time. Cable also bring, uh, Abel, Cable, uh, Abel also brings, and there's a couple of things we learn about his offering. What, what do we learn just in the first half of that verse about his offering? 
firstborn and and the fat ones. There might be some scrawny firstborns, but those he doesn't bring. He brings the fat of his flock. There's already a bit of a distinction made there. So you've got Abel bringing really the, the cream of his crop, or <laughs> a crop in this case, but it's the best of his animals, while Cain is taking after some time what's left of his, of his vegetables there. So how do I know that Cain didn't do what's right? Well, Hebrews 11 later will tell me a little bit about that. We're going to make the connection there. But look at the verse, the rest of verse 4. I told you that God is not judging the offering here. I don't believe that he is. <laughs> It says the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Does your version say that? It does. <laughs> did you notice that before? <laughs> he did not respect Cain. And my version says, therefore, did not respect his offering. That, the version in Portuguese, not the English version. So God looked first at the person before he looked at the offering. And because he respected Abel, he accepted his offering. Now, I think the offering says something about the person, I do believe that, and I believe Abel, because he was seeking to please God, did offer something different. By faith, Hebrews 11, 4 says, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. So that tells me, in the context of Hebrews 11, that Abel knew what God wanted, because faith is something that God has revealed, and then Abel gave what God is looking for. Cain, in some way, did not. I don't know all the details, but Abel is held up as an example of one who acted by faith. And he gave this offering. And so God looked at Abel's heart and he respected the offering because Abel's heart was right. That is very challenging for me and I hope for all of us as we consider the offerings we make, our offerings of the fruit of our lips, Hebrews chapter 13 says, as we sing up uh, hymns to him. Where's our heart? Does he respect us and therefore the offering of our song? Maybe our voice is not very good. <laughs> Sometimes I really struggle with that. But if my heart, that's where I'm making the melody, by the way, for the Lord, is in my heart as I'm singing these words and encouraging my brethren and myself as I'm listening. One of the best singers I ever sat next to could not carry a tune in a bucket. But he would make you cry, not because his voice was so bad, but because his heart was so good. <laughs> as he was singing to the Lord and you just wanted to join in that horrible sound that was beautiful from the heart. I don't mean it to sound flippant. He was singing with his entire heart. His voice, if he was in a singing competition, would have lost. But for the Lord, he was pouring himself out. <laughs> Abel offered the kind of offering that the Lord respected him. Cain offered the kind of offering that the Lord did not respect him. The Lord, who is spirit, is looking for relationship with us, not our things. He can make all the sheep he wants to make. The cattle in a thousand hills are his, we find out later, and more than that. <laughs> And he can make all of the, the fruit of the ground. He made it in the first place. He's the one who caused it to grow. He can make as much of that as he wants. That's not what he's looking for. But the way we take of the things that he's made for us and, and give them freely to him, is we give our resources, our time, our energy, our passion, if we give that back to him, he sees that. And if we don't, he sees that. The Pharisees gave thousands and thousands into those coffers. And Jesus was watching, and the widow gave her two mites, and he said, that's the better sacrifice. She gave all she had, because she knew, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, she was going to be taken care of in Israel, because in Israel there were laws about taking care of the widows and the orphans and the stranger, and the Pharisees were taken care of as well. So well taken care of that they wanted everybody to see what a show they were making as they blew the trumpet, giving alms, 
And as they poured their clanky coins, making all that money into those buckets, everybody could hear. And Jesus said, they just gave what was left over. That's a Cain-type offering. So God did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. I understand, perhaps, Cain's disappointment, but his anger? We said before that this is the first attempt of men to approach God, at least that we see in the Bible. They're bringing an offering because they want to please God. They want to draw near to God. I was talking with uh, Jim and with uh, Bryant earlier today about the, the morning and evening sacrifices we read about in Exodus 29. And God says, if you'll bring these before me at the door of the tabernacle, there I will meet with you. And it reminds you of James chapter 4 where God says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the whole purpose of these offerings is to draw near to God so he'll draw near to you. So you're opening the door for a relationship that he opened the door for. You're just coming to him. And so that's what Cain and Abel want. And yet Cain realizes his offering has not been accepted. And so he becomes angry. I've studied with a lot of people who begin to, to perceive, begin to recognize, wait a second, I'm not doing what that says. And some of them will be cut to the heart and say, what should I do? Some. Many more will say, who are you to tell me I'm not doing right? <laughs> That's your faith. <laughs> this is mine. I've had a man stand up and threaten to hit me and put me out of his house. He threw his keys down on the table and was mad. And my wife was saying, let's go. And he said, who do you think you are? <laughs> and I said, sir, you read the text. <laughs> I haven't even made a comment. It was about his marriage that wasn't valid and he knew it. You read the text. Well, you don't have any right to tell me I shouldn't be married. I said, you read the text several times. He had been coming more faithful than many of our members until that moment. He kicked me out of his house and never came back again. <laughs> Why was he angry? At that time, I hadn't been studying very much this, but that's the question I ask now. When someone gets angry, I love the way God handled this. <laughs> God just said, Why are you angry? <laughs> that's the great question. He said to Adam, Where? are you? <laughs> Did you eat from the tree I said not to eat of? He knows the answer. Most of the time I know the answer when I say, why are you angry? But you know what it does? It makes the person pause for a second and think, why am I angry? <laughs> That's a good question. It's not an accusation, it's a question. <laughs> if he starts accusing me and then I accuse him back and say, you don't want to do God's will, it's over right there. But if I say, why are you angry? <laughs> he may start telling me, well, you're trying to tell me it's this and my parents said it was this and my church says it's this. That's frustrating. I understand. That's confusion. God is not a God of confusion. So we've got to settle this somehow. But why are you angry? Well, because I want to please God. Excellent. You ought to be angry if someone has fooled you into not pleasing God. Or if you fooled yourself. How do you know how to please God? Right here. If we can read this together and do what it says, we can please God. But if we can read this and reject it, we're not going to be pleasing to God. Anger at first as a motivator, but you can't stay there. Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? He is visibly upset with God. <laughs> David sometimes in the Psalms is pretty angry, <laughs> but he's not angry at God. He's angry about the situation and he's calling on God finally to act. How can you wait so long? <laughs> we see the same thing in some of the prophets. How long, O oh Lord? And the Lord says, you sure you want the answer? <laughs> because uh, you're not doing so well yourself. 
How long? So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? And look at verse 7. This is so telling. If you do well, will I not accept your offering? I hope your version doesn't say that. Have you noticed that God does not mention the offering again? God's not after the offering. He's after Cain. If you do well, I will accept you, Cain. Just like I accepted your brother Abel. That is so telling. He says that Abel did well. He didn't say that, but he's saying that Cain hasn't, which means that Abel must have, because Abel was accepted. If you do well, you will be accepted. If you do not do well, be careful, because here in like 20 or 25 years, you might end up sinning, is not what he says. Sin lies at the door, literally crouches at the door. It's springing, it's ready to attack. The serpent was right there in the garden. <laughs> Sin, we might say, it's under the bed. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> you know, lies at the door, is at hand. These expressions that mean it's close by. Satan is waiting for an opportunity. The construction of the last part of this verse is really interesting. If you have the New King James, you'll notice it's the same phrase that he said to the woman, only it's a little bit inverted. He said, sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, he told the woman, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's the same construction in the Hebrew. Isn't that kind of strange? It's a question of government. There, the woman's desire, some of the versions said, is contrary to the husband. The point is, she wants to be the leader. And God says, you will not be the leader. Your husband will govern in this relationship. What is he saying to Cain here about sin then? Sin wants to rule you. <laughs> Doesn't Romans talk about that? You gave yourself as a slave to sin. Give yourself now to a, as a slave to God. Don't let sin reign or rule over your mortal bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He'll say in chapter 12, you died to sin. You've given yourself as a living sacrifice now to serve God. You've got a new master. It's no longer sin. It's the king. <laughs> let him rule over you. That's the construction here in verse 7. Sin's desire is for you or contrary to you may be in the translation there. But you should rule over it. I want you to notice how important what God says to Cain here is. Because it implies something very important for us. Sin does not rule over us. We submit to it. God's design is that in this broken world now, we rule over sin. We say like Jesus, get behind me, Satan. We don't say, okay, just one more time. Get behind me, Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what we're told in the New Testament. Sin should not rule over us. And unfortunately, so often, even among Christians, it does. We cannot allow that to continue. God has told Cain, it's up to him. But the way out then, do well. Well, how do I know how to do well? Well, God's going to tell Cain here. This is such a beautiful picture. I want you to think about this. If Abel did well, and Hebrews 11.4 says he did by faith, that means God has already revealed his will to Abel, I would say probably also to Cain by this point. Cain didn't do well, which means he avoided doing what God wanted him to do. God first began by revealing his will. Abel decided to do it, Cain no. When Cain didn't do what God wanted, the first thing God did is he rejected the offering. That was a blessing. It's a blessing. Because it means Cain has to think about for a second, whoa, wait a second, what happened? 
What wasn't good about that? But he doesn't. Instead of thinking, what I do wrong, he says, why is God so hateful? That's the way people respond. People want to serve God. I'm convinced that many, many of our religious friends, they really want to serve God. They're confused about how to do it. They're not going to their Bibles first. They're listening to YouTube videos or to their pastor. They're reading philosophy books and then trying to serve God and they're stumbling through and they recognize it's not resolving their issues and they're angry because God's not accepting their worship. And then we show them the truth and they get angry at the messenger and angry at the truth. But that's wrong. I want to please God. That's where it started at least. And then it became a pride thing. I'm going to make sure I get it right. No, I want to please God. Think about in a relationship. That's what this is about. It's a relationship. I want to please my wife. So I decide for our anniversary, I'm going to get her a beautiful new set of golf clubs. I'm going to polish them all up and set them right in the bedroom door so she sees it first thing in the morning. She's never played golf a day in her life. <laughs> she may be thankful that I'm thinking of her. That is not a gift that's going to please her. <laughs> And so she gets up and she looks at it. And, oh, honey, thank you. I know that must have cost a lot of money. I appreciate. And she's, it's just something not right about it. And so we go through the day a little bit and she's a little bit mopey and cranky. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, she says, well, I don't like golf. What? Oh, well, I'll use them. <laughs> okay. That's what we do sometimes religiously. This is something I like. Surely God's going to like this. And so we begin to give what feels good to us without ever consulting what does God really want. There's a couple of things I could have done to fix that. I could have asked one of my kids, my daughter especially, what do you think mom wants for anniversary? My daughter would know. But you know what's even better than that? Ask her. <laughs> Honey, our anniversary's coming up. What, what would you really like? What would please you? That's what good husbands do. We, we know a story. It's, it's almost comical. A couple had been together for several decades and the man went out of his way and bought really, really nice, I mean, really nice chocolates. <laughs> like, expense, I didn't know chocolates could cost this much. And gives her this basket of chocolates and she is angry. <laughs> and he can't figure out why. And he's a loving guy. I mean, he really is. He really was hoping to please his wife. And finally, after the whole day of her being just cold to him and, and upset, she says, honey, I've never liked chocolate. I don't like it at all. Like, she doesn't. Really, I don't know anybody that doesn't like it, but she doesn't. And the daughter was mad all day, too, because you know mom doesn't like chocolate. This is an anniversary gift. How do you not know your wife well enough to know this is not something she likes? All he knew was he was trying to give her the most extravagant thing he could think of to give her, but it didn't have the effect that he intended because he didn't know his wife about that kind of a thing. And did he get angry? No, his feelings were hurt, but really because he didn't know his wife like he thought he did. That's, that's a hard realization. But that's fixable. <laughs> and with God it is too. If we will look at what he wants, <laughs> don't give God golf clubs. <laughs> give God you. That's what he wants. He wants to see you giving yourself. If you do well. <laughs> he didn't say if you bring me good things. If you do well, I made you for good. I made you in my image. If you honor that image, if you do what is right, if you do mercy, love justice, and walk humbly with your God, that's the way it's put later. <laughs> that's what God wants. If we'll do that, we'll be accepted. So I want you to notice God's grace here as he first revealed his will, then rejected the offering, and then when he saw that Cain was angry, he put himself beside Cain. I don't know how. I don't know in what, what respect. Put himself beside Cain and said, look, here's what happened. Don't be angry. 
do this. That is grace upon grace upon grace. This story in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, we see murder, and we see the consequences of terrible sin, but we don't often see grace. And I think this is the chapter where we see so much grace. And it began with God already revealing what he wanted to Cain and Abel. We don't see that part. We find out about it later in Hebrews 11. But God began there already telling them what he wanted. We saw it with Adam and Eve. But I believe we see it with Cain and Abel as we read between the lines here. And then God rejected the offering, and then went to talk to Cain very calmly. Why are you angry? Do well. Told him what to do. Verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. There's a word that was repeated in this reading from verse uh, 2 all the way through verse 11. If you had to guess how many times we've seen this pattern already, Seven times there's a word that's repeated. Did you notice what that word is? I tried to emphasize it when I was reading, but I tried to do it subtly. It's on all of your translations I've checked. <laughs> what word is repeated seven times from verse 2 to verse 11 conspicuously? Somebody said it, I think. I thought I heard it. <laughs> I'll give you a second, they'll let you off the hook. Brother. Seven times God says brother I want you to notice what he's emphasizing in this text here this is a heinous sin that we are witnessing the second most intimate relationship possible on earth after husband and wife Adam and Eve is going to be brother and brother here and one is going to kill the other and God emphasizes seven times both at the moment when she conceives and bears his brother and then six times in his conversation with Cain Brother, your brother, your brother's blood, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Over and over that word just keeps coming up. And I believe it's there for a very specific reason. We are meant to see. And Cain is used later as an example of one who hates God and who hates his brethren, <laughs> hates his brother. And we're, see, we're seeing that example later as what we ought not to follow. So he rose up against Abel, his brother, he had gone out to talk with Abel, his brother. They both worked out in the field. One's keeping the sheep, one's tilling the ground. So they're both out there. That's not kind of strange to call him out. But Cain has had this conversation with God where God says, you need to do well. And Cain says, no, I'll do better. <laughs> I'll just take away the one you love so much and you'll have to accept my offering. Sometimes that's the easier thing, it seems like at least. <laughs> When Jesus tells the, the, the story, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, they decide they're going to kill the son when they see him coming, and then the vineyard will be ours. Really? Do people think that way? It's an exaggeration in the story. But Cain seems to think that way. If I kill him, then the offerings that I offer up, he'll have to accept. Who else is going to give them? <laughs> That's crazy. That is a debased mind that Roman 1 talks about. That is darkness, that is futility, that is emptiness in the heart. Those are the things that God corrected at creation, that as we reject God and don't glorify him and are not thankful that those things happen to our heart, we see it with Cain right here. The emptiness, the void, 
the futility, the foolishness, and the darkness of his heart that can kill his own brother because God was accepting what his brother was doing. How sad. I love verse 9. Cain kills his brother, and the Lord says to Cain, there's not even a gap between those two verses. It's like God was right there. I believe he was. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Does the Lord know? We find out in a couple of verses that he knew. But he did the same thing he did with Adam. He asked a question that he knows the answer to because he's looking for a confession. There is grace here. If I'm God, and I love Abel for what Abel's doing, and I've been talking to Cain already and trying to get him to do what's right, and then Cain goes out and kills Abel, what would you do? I asked that question yesterday about the tree. What would you do? Would you be just in taking Cain out? I would. God would have been. Cain deserved but Cain got what he didn't deserve. He got grace. God said, where is Abel, your brother? He's looking for an opportunity to forgive if Abel will confess. He's looking for an opportunity to change the course of where, of, I'm sorry, where Cain is headed. If Cain will confess. But Cain, I believe, learned really well from his father and his mother. And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Did you notice what he did there? Remember the, the, the sort of the dodge that Adam and Eve gave? The woman you gave to be with me? The serpent that you created? <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? I thought he was your favorite. <laughs> you see that? Aren't you the great God, protector, resolver of problems? Where were you when Abel died? There's an article that was just published a couple of days ago. Where was God when the shooter went in in Nashville and killed all those kids? And it was an accusation. I know where God was. Jesus wept over Lazarus' death. You think God isn't weeping over the death of those innocent children and the janitor and the others that were killed there? Absolutely. We're talking with Mr. Bill today about Romans chapter 8. We groan in this world with birth pangs together. We groan. The whole world groans. And the Spirit of God groans with us as we reach out to him in prayer and don't even know how to ask for things. <laughs> this world's full of groaning because of the brokenness of sin. You think God wasn't groaning when Abel was killed by Cain? And yet he came to Cain and said, where is Abel your brother? Think about how Cain's life could have been so different if Cain would have said, I was angry and I sinned. There's so much grace being poured out right here toward Cain. And Cain says, I don't know, a flat lie in God's face. We would never do that. How many times have we done that? We hide it just about as well as he did. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is yes. Yes, you are. God put us here to keep one another. Proverbs talk about that. Ecclesiastes talks about that. The law talks about that. That we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're exactly here for that. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. So then God, in the same language he used to the serpent, says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I want you to notice something here. The voice of your brother's blood. Sometimes we just think of the fact that there's blood there, and so God's seeing the blood and he just knows Abel's dead. That's not what God said. Hebrews 11.4 says, Abel being dead still speaks better things. <laughs> Hold on a second. Abel being dead yet speaks? God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. <laughs> 
At the first death in the Bible, we have got the first glimpse of resurrection. Right here. A dead man speaking to God. You ever noticed that before? The first death in the Bible, God gives us a glimpse of resurrection and hope. Abel, Cain killed him, and yet he's still in communion with God. He's still in fellowship with God. Because Abel was pleasing to God so that even after death, he's still speaking. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. That is hope. Right there in one of the darkest moments of human history, this great, big, brilliant light of hope. Hebrews 11.4, Abel being dead yet speaks. <laughs> yes, he does. And we ought to be listening. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth. It must have been painful for God to curse the serpent, one of his creatures. How much more painful to curse one now that was made in his image, but who is acting like the serpent. <laughs> he gets the same judgment the serpent got. You are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. God cursed the earth, then he cursed the serpent, and now he curses one who's acting like the serpent. Do you notice that? That's got to be hard for God. You are cursed. So he says in verse 12, the consequence of this curse, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. I don't think that second part of this phrase is part of the judgment. I think God is just prophesying, knowing how hard it's going to be for Cain, what Cain's going to end up doing. We'll see in a moment why I say that. We'll get to those verses in just a second. But God is just saying, this is what's going to happen. But I want you to notice the first part. I think the first part is part of the curse. When you till the ground, it'll no longer yield its strength to you. Here is a cursed earth being worked by cursed hands. It's not going to produce anything. So is God just being cruel? God's being gracious. How in the world is Cain going to get food? I want you to think about that for just a second. How is Cain going to get food if he can not work the earth and have it produce anything? I want to suggest to you one way. He can crawl around on his belly like the serpent and go under the brambles. You know that God provides wild berries and wild I mean, it's just there. And the animals all eat it. And he can crawl around like an animal and get it. How humiliating for a farmer to have to crawl around on his belly like the serpent. That's one possibility. He can do that. He would just be imitating the serpent that's crawling around eating dust. There's a second way. This is the way Cain will choose, by the way. This is the second way. I don't think this is what God wanted, but it's, it's a possibility. He can run off somewhere far, and he can find other people that are working the earth, and he can steal from them or convince them to give him some. Now, I know there's some time involved in this. We're not going to get into those details right now, but that's a second possibility. So he can crawl around on his belly, or he can run off somewhere and either steal or convince others to give him food since he can't make it for himself. Is there another possibility? Is there another possibility that would be part of God's gracious plan to bring Cain back to restoration? I submit there's an exact possibility. I believe this is what God had in mind when he said, Cain, you can't produce food anymore. Who can that's still alive. We haven't looked at the timeline. Genesis 5, we get a timeline. Cain and Abel are early in the timeline. <laughs> There's only one person, Noah, that would not have been able to talk directly to Adam. He came along the generation after. Uh, everybody up to Lamech would have been able to talk personally to Adam. They were still alive is the point. So who's still alive that can till the ground and produce food? Adam is. Abel's father. Cain's father. 
But what on earth would that take for Cain to be able to eat food at Adam's table? Can you see God's grace in this plan? Cain will have to admit that he sinned, that he killed Abel. He'll have to ask forgiveness from his father and his mother, and he'll have to beg them for mercy so they can provide him food as he, in repentance, begins to work for the family that's giving him grace through the grace of God. I believe that's God's plan. That's what God is looking for. Now, he says at the end, you're not going to accept that, Cain. <laughs> Cain has shown a pattern already that doesn't accept God's grace. He doesn't listen when God first reveals. He doesn't try to figure out why things aren't going right when he does things wrong. He doesn't listen when God then brings correction to his ears. And then he goes out and kills whatever gets in his way. He hasn't shown a pattern of accepting God's grace. And God's grace has been over and over and over offered to Cain here. And even in the punishment, when he makes it hard on Cain, but not impossible, he's expecting Cain to be broken and humbled and come back. That's what God wants. As there's a way of Cain, there's a way to God. And there's a way to the tree of life. We find out about the way of Cain in the New Testament. That's what Cain's going to do. But God tells Cain right here, you're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. You're going to choose the last possible option, the worst possible option. So let's watch Cain's reaction here, verses 13 through 16. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Okay, so Cain hears this gracious offering of the Lord. <laughs> as he's placed this curse on his hands so he can't till the earth and yet has allowed him to continue alive because he deserved death, right? And yet God allows him in a humbled state to continue alive, hoping to humble his heart. And Cain, instead of humbling himself, rails against God. This is unfair. This punishment is greater than anyone can bear. How dare you treat me this way, God? Wasn't I trying to bring you an offering? This is a reaction that often comes from religious people when they learn the truth and decide, no, I'm not doing that. If you want me, you'll take me this way. <laughs> they invert the sense of just as I am, and that's what's being taught in so many churches. Just as I am means you're willing to accept me, but I've got to come humble and repentant, not you better take me like I am because you're not getting anything else. That is not the attitude, but that's what Cain's offering. This is unfair. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. No, he didn't. Cain is choosing that. I want you to notice why I say that now. Look at how many times he says, I and me in the rest of this verse. It's not seven. That would be perfect, but it's not. I shall be hidden from your, from your face. In the Hebrew, it says, I shall hide myself from your face. Some of the translations bring that out. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. This is what I'm choosing. And it'll happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. He's looking at himself, thinking of himself, not repenting about the one he killed, not looking to the God who's offering him grace. He's saying, me, 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 me. That's the problem, isn't it? Our society teaches us to say, me, 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 me from early on. And then we reject God because 
even though he's looking for me, 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 he's not wanting to do it the way I want him to do it. Look how mean you are, God. Somebody's going to try to kill me. Isn't that an interesting thing? <laughs> he already understands that he deserves death. And people say, well, who in the world is he thinking of? All these people out there that we haven't even heard anything about. I don't think that's what he's thinking of at all. Since he hasn't repented and isn't willing to show any kind of humility, Adam is probably going to come after him. <laughs> he's spilled innocent blood. And later we'll learn about the idea of one who has the right to put to death a murderer. <laughs> But God extends grace even in this. Not so, Cain. <laughs> Whoever kills you <laughs> will be avenged sevenfold. It's going to be so bad for that person. I'm going to put a mark on you so that anybody that sees that will not kill you. Oh my, that's so hard to think about. Why? Why, God? How long, O oh Lord? And that's the question. What is going to be the state of Cain here? If he cannot be killed by another man, how is he likely to die? <laughs> At a ripe old age, why would God give him that blessing? Second Peter 3.9 <laughs> God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The long-suffering of our Lord is life, is hope. He wants Cain to have a long life to rethink what happened. God, who should have just gotten rid of Cain right off the bat, has so much more grace than I do. I want to vaporize people in traffic sometimes. I'm glad my wife keeps saying, it's a good thing God doesn't think the way you do, and boy, I need to work on that. But, and I don't really want that to happen, but boy, I get so frustrated sometimes when I'm driving. And yet this man lied to God's face, killed God's faithful servant, rejected God over and over and over, and God said, please, nobody kill Cain. Let him live a long time and think about this. Maybe he'll come home prodigal father, <laughs> prodigal son's father, waiting for Cain to come back. He never does, as far as we know, biblically. He's held up as an example of what not to do, so I think we'd be pretty confident he never came back. But God wanted him to. <laughs> how much grace he extended. Have you done something so horrible that God cannot forgive you? You haven't. You haven't. Look at how much grace God has to give. <laughs> He's wanting you to. <laughs> He's willing to do what it takes to bring you back. That's what he showed at the cross. He's willing to do whatever it takes. That was a lot that he did there. He set a mark on Cain so nobody could kill him. So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That is so telling. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't say the Lord sent Cain out of his presence. That's not what God wanted. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. It's been a long time coming. But now he just finally went. And he went out to the land of wandering. If we were reading this in Hebrew, that's what nod means. Became a wanderer. He has no way, no path. In Deuteronomy and in Exodus, when the instructions are given about following the law, it says don't wander to the left or to the right. Keep on the straight and narrow, as the old timers would say. Keep on the straight and narrow. That's the path you want. Don't be wandering through life. But that's what Cain wanted. He went to wander in the land of wandering, on the east of Eden. They were cast out of Eden to the east. He went even farther east. Everything that's east of Eden, when you think about the, the, the centrality of the concept of Eden, and then later the promised land, everything to the east, that is where you find the Babylonians. That is where you find everything that brings problems back to Israel, as off to these. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah were in terms of the, the movement of Lot towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Anything heading east is always going to have a negative connotation. The concept of that comes from here. 
Heading west is heading back toward the way of the tree of life, back toward the presence of God, back to the family of God. And that's the image we have so often in the Bible of this coming back, coming home, coming to the mountain that's raised above all the mountains there in Zion. That is what God would have hoped for Cain. But Cain left. Grace upon grace upon grace. This is a story of grace. It is an amazing story of grace because we see the murder and yet the murderer is allowed to live in the hope that he'll come back. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, all of those religious leaders, all of the crowd who yelled, crucify him, crucify him, are extended grace because God wants them to come back. It's amazing to me that as we watch those first several months, maybe those first several years going up through Acts chapter 6 or 7, in Acts chapter 6, toward the end of the chapter, as they begin to take on the needs of the widowed Hellenists that are there, as they begin to preach more and more openly the word of God, it says the priests <laughs> obeyed the gospel. The priests! As God extended grace to the very ones who are responsible for getting Jesus nailed up on that cross. And they began to see this God that we serve wants us back. And many of them came back. A great number of the priests. It's beautiful to see that. Grace upon grace upon grace. That's what the story of God is. He is a loving God who made in his love this great creation, this perfectly made Eden, this holy of holies where he could have relationship with man. And man turned away. And God extended grace and said, come back. And he sent his only son down that he could find those lost sheep and bring them home. I hope this study of Genesis 1-4 through 4 has been rewarding and enriching for you. I hope you'll go back and read through these things. The PowerPoints we didn't use because it's just so much, but I've left them for you to have. Please look through those. Help me if you find new things. Let me know uh, what encourages you, what else could be, could be worked on. I'd love to hear from you about that. The natural course from here is to go right into the Gospels. Now, when I do this study with other people, I stop here at this verse, and they're asking questions. How is God going to fix this? And we go talk about Jesus up in Mark. <laughs> That's a great place to go. Questions that come up early in Mark, we point back to Genesis, and they say, oh, yeah, I know the answer already. It's right there. That's the good news that's been waiting. You guys have been so wonderful to my family. Thank you so much for this great reception. It has been a blessing for us to be here. I'm sad that we're leaving tomorrow. I'd love just to go on to Mark and then to Leviticus and just keep doing this as long as y'all put up with me. Maybe we'll come back some other time and do more. But we just love you guys, and God has really loved us through you. May he be glorified and honored. If you need to respond to his grace, if there's something that's been holding you back, he wants you to come, and we want to help you do that. If you know someone who needs his grace, that is, everybody you know, make sure you share this good news with them as well. But we're going to stand right now and encourage each other as we sing this song to God, thanking him for his great grace. <laughs>